Montebello Church Sermons. Hello. Welcome back to chapter one of the book of Ephesians. At this rate, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to get through this little letter, but uh, it's okay because it's rich. There's a lot of wonderful things in here, and I'm, I'm going to be picking up at verse 15. And so let me go ahead and just start with verse 15, and immediately it's, it's going to cause us to ask a question. Here's what it says. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith, time out, stop. First three words, for this reason. It immediately begs the question, for what reason? What came before that Paul's referring to? And what came before, of course, is what Dwight, Pastor Dwight was talking about last time when he talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul mentioned that there was something that, that happened to believers when they entered into their faith relationship through the Lord Jesus that there was something happening to them. And what happened was that they became new creatures. And of course, the thing that makes the new creatures of them is the coming and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is talking about. And so I'm going to go ahead and, and back up maybe just uh, maybe a little more than one verse into verse 14. And a little above the last of, the, of, verse, of verse 13 that says, the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is the thing that Paul is referring to. And what he's mentioning in that previous verse is that the Holy Spirit is with us and in us kind of as a down payment, the guarantee that there's something more coming later. And that something more is the plan that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we were talking about how the Lord had a plan to bring his creation back together. He created in two, more than one dimension. He created in two dimensions. They were separated, and that God's intention was to bring the creation back together again under one ruler, namely Jesus. And in order to do that, he needed to bring his, cre his created people back together so that they could participate in that ongoing plan of seeing the redemption of creation and bringing it back together. And his means of empowering those united peoples for the purpose of advancing the kingdom was to indwell them with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Paul said that's a, that's a down payment because what is going to happen ultimately is all of those people united in Christ are going to be a part of a united creation and there will be the kingdom of God under the authority and headship of the Lord Jesus. Okay, So that's what Paul is talking about when he says there's going to be, this is your inheritance and the full measure of your inheritance, which you will claim at some point, is your participation in and your, your citizenship in the kingdom of God. United fully developed as he designed it to be and fully empowered to accomplish whatever his purposes whatever his purposes are so when paul says in verse 15 he says for this reason that is the indwelling of your spirit i have heard of your faith in the lord and your love for all the saints we need to unpack this a little bit he said he has heard of their faith now this reminds me of my favorite verse. I don't, 
I don't care how many times you hear me teach, you'll probably have me land in John 13, 34, and 35 at some point. This is where Jesus is with his disciples uh, at the Last Supper. He knows he is going to be departing from them. And so he gives them at that moment, at that time, he gives them what we know is the new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And gave him, my, and, and as I have loved you, and then he goes on to say, this is the way the world is going to recognize that you are my disciples. Oh, that means that there's something visible about this thing that's happening among them. And I, I always want to point this out. When Jesus gives a commandment, when he couches it in those terms, well, that's not something you kind of do accidentally. If your boss gives you an order or an instruction and you decide to do it when it's convenient, well, you don't have a job. I mean, that's the way that works. And so you understand a commandment is something that you don't do when you feel like it, or you don't do it when it's convenient. You do it because it's a commandment. And interestingly, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. What does that do? Instantly, it takes it out of the realm of a feeling. We like to think of love as having a positive, affirmative, sometimes even a romantic feeling toward another person. You can't command that. It'd be like me commanding you to be amused. The only reason you might be amused is because it's absurd. Uh, you're amused because, well, you're amused. But in this case, Jesus says, I command you to love one another. That means it's an intentional act. It's something he is asking them in commanding them to do. Now, the other thing that you, you see in that commandment is that it's, he expects them to do it the way he did it, which was self-sacrificial, right? I mean, Jesus gave himself up for his, for his bride, for his church. Jesus said, that's the way I want you to love. I want you to love that way. And that, by the way, is an invitation into the new covenant. Because when you love other people, that's a new covenant kind of love. It's, it's not a contract. Remember last time I, I was with you, I distinguished for you the difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract tries to secure for the, for the signers the maximum benefit and also to limit their liabilities. It's all about them. But if you enter into a covenant, particularly the new covenant in this context, you're entering into a relationship with other people that is for the benefit of the other person. And when you enter into a relationship that's self-sacrificial like that, Jesus is inviting us into the new covenant, a relationship, a community, where everybody is looking out for everybody else. And Jesus said something very interesting. He said, this is the way the world's going to know that you're my disciples, if you love one another that way. That's how they'll know. It isn't your evangelism program. It's not your bumper sticker. It's not any of that. It is the fact that you love one another. It's what Francis Schaeffer called the mark of the Christian. In other words, if you love one another intentionally and it's visible, then that means your love is going to be practical because it has to be in order for people to be able to see it. And that's the evidence. That's the evidence that you're the disciples of Jesus. Well, now let's go back to John chapter 15. I mean, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, 
For this reason, I've heard of your faith. See, Paul has seen something in them, hasn't he? He has seen and he's heard that these people love one another. They have loved according to Jesus' commandment, and their love has made it evident that they are followers of Jesus because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in them that's empowered them to do it. And so Jesus, so Paul says, for this reason, because they have the Holy Spirit empowering them to love one another, he says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love for. I'm going to stop there. Because one of the things that, uh, that we sometimes do is, is forget that in the Greek language, things don't always translate precisely from Greek to English. Okay, now this is one of those situations that happens in a couple of places here in this, in this very verse. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith, he's seen that practical, intentional faith in the Lord and your love, and your love. Okay, let's stop at and. There's more than one way to understand the word and. Sometimes when we read it, it sounds like one thing added to another. But the word can is sometimes translated and could easily be translated indeed or moreover. Listen to how that changes what Paul is writing here. He says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, indeed your love. Or moreover, your love. In other words, the evidence of their faith in the Lord Jesus is their love. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, indeed, your love for all the saints. Okay, now let's stop again. Because there's something wrapped up in this last word in the verse, the word saints. Now, there are a number of, of scholars who really have a hard time with the English translation of this word. That, that translates out and, come, and becomes saints. Many of us who come from a more liturgical or, or formal church background have a hard time getting over this word because the word saint implies uh, somebody who has extraordinary piety or faith, um, is responsible for miracles. So you've got Saint Francis and Saint Augustine, and you've got Saint this and Saint that. And we have a hard time getting over the, the notion that a saint is somebody of extraordinary piety. Now, if we've been in Scripture, the New Testament Scriptures enough, long enough, we come to realize that the word saints is, is to be understood as people who follow Jesus. These are people who are among the followers of the Lord, They're, and, and they, are, they are called saints as we understand it. Now, but there's something behind the word that I think we probably need to, we need to look and see it because it's very important in the context in, in Ephesians. If you look at the word, it's the, in, in the Greek, in the original language, the word is hagios. It means, really, holy ones. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying, your love for all the holy ones. That sounds kind of presumptuous, almost as presumptuous as being called a saint, you know. But that's literally what the word means. In Greek, holy, hagios, holy ones. But interestingly enough, if you go back into Hebrew, there's also a reference to this notion or this concept of holy ones. In the, in the Hebrew, often the word is kadoshim, 
which comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means holy. Kadoshim, holy ones. But there's something very interesting about this reference to holy ones in the Old Testament. <laughs> Strap yourself in. Because the majority of the times that holy ones in Hebrew are mentioned, it is referencing beings that are native to the heavenly places. Remember I told you there's several times, several times in the uh, uh, in the book of Ephesians that refers to heavenly places. Well, in the Old Testament, when you refer to holy ones, Kadoshim, the majority of the times reference them as being native to the heavenly places. Hmm. More than that, there's also places that refers to a group of people, these, these holy ones, when they're referred to in a group, when it gets translated into Greek, the, the translation comes out, brace yourself, ecclesia. Now, for some of you, the light's going on here. In the, now, when I say that the Hebrew is translated into Greek, I'm referring to, to something called the Septuagint. Some of you know that the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And so what I'm saying is that the holy ones in Hebrew gets translated into Greek, hagios. And when we talk about an assembly, for example, Psalm 89.5, when you talk about an assembly of holy ones, when it gets translated into Greek, it's ekklesia. Now, why that's significant? Is the word that we translate church in the New Testament is, guess what? Ekklesia. So there is a connection between hagios and heavenly beings. The holy ones of the Old Testament were heavenly beings translated into the, into the, the Greek of the Septuagint. That's the reference. Beings who are native to the heavenly places. And the reference to the ecclesia is, is what we translate church. Now, sadly, our understanding of the word church typically has something to do with a place. It has a location implied by it. But the word ecclesia doesn't imply a space, a place, or a location. The word ecclesia talks about a people. So what Paul is saying here when he re references the love of all the saints, he's saying, you have a, I've recognized that there is a love for the holy ones who share your ultimate destiny, namely that you're bi-dimensional beings. You have been redeemed for the purpose of being able to walk in both the heavenly places and the earthly places. I love the way C.S. Lewis refers to, to this concept in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He calls human beings amphibians. That is, they are eternal in, in one sense, but they're also animals. They're spirits and they're animals. But the fact is, God's intention is that they be able to traffic, as it were, in both of the dimensions of his, of his created universe. Not only the earthly places, but also the heavenly ones. And so Paul's writing here, he says... Um, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord, even your love for all 
the holy ones who share your eternal destiny because you have Christ in you as the down payment. It's, it's, a, it's, it's really a mind-blowing verse if you look at it. Now, the next couple of verses I really like because they give us kind of a glimpse, sort of a snapshot of what Paul's prayer life was like. Now, I'm not saying that this is the sum and substance of prayer. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you want to get kind of a glimpse of how Paul spends his time when he's in prayer, here's a couple of places that you, you can see where he touches down in his prayer life. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, um, as, as he's referred to them as, and their love for all of the holy ones, he says, I, don't, I do not cease giving thanks for you when I remember you in my prayers. Okay, so he's, he's put his discussion now in the context of the way he prays. And part of the way he prays is the prayer of thanksgiving. And I think that's extremely important. Matter of fact, it's something that I've been trying to train myself to do. Uh, and, you know, if Paul does it, I think we're probably on safe ground of saying that maybe it needs to be a part of our prayer life as well. Uh, so I've tried to include, when I pray in the mornings during my devotional time, I try to in, include a prayer of thanksgiving. You know, the scripture talks about entering into the gates, into God's, into the gates of God's courts with praise and thanksgiving. And so uh, I sometimes journal, matter of fact, often journal. And one of the ways I'll start my journal entry for a particular day is to write, I am thankful for dot, dot, dot. And then I try to review in my thinking uh, the gifts and graces that I've encountered maybe over the past day or so. And among those things that I might be thankful for is maybe a visit from, from one of my kids or an encounter with somebody that, uh, that was particularly meaningful. Thanksgiving might include maybe just a cool breeze. <laughs> I love cool weather. And I find myself thanking the Lord a lot for cool weather. Now, cold weather, snowy weather, well, maybe that's a little different story. But I can still be thankful. And so another thing that I've been actually... Uh, thinking is that I need to be thankful for the little things. It's okay to be thankful for the big things. You know, you win the lottery or something, you can be thankful. But you can also be thankful for the little things. The coffee in your cup, the food on your table, the roof over your heads. Right now, Jody and I are living in a 25-foot trailer waiting for a, a more substantial dwelling place to be built uh, because we moved out of our house of 35 years. So we're, we're in a trailer. But I, I realize that we're actually very fortunate. I, need, I can be thankful that we have a warm place to be and a dry place to be. So you get, you get the picture. Paul is thankful, in this case, for the church in Ephesus. They're on his mind, they're on his heart, and he gives thanks for them. He says, I don't cease to give thanks when I remember you in my prayers. Now, it goes on and gives us a glimpse of another element or another dimension of his prayer life, which we can probably adopt for our own. And here's what he says. He says, I don't cease to give thanks. And then in verse 17, he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him. By the way, I'm reading from the New English Translation. Uh, but some of your translations say that he's, he prays that the Lord would give them a spirit of wisdom. 
Now, here's, here's that word spirit. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. We've also talked about this spirit. And basically, the word is pneuma, means breath. And interestingly, if you find the word in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it also means something like wind or breath, ruach, is the, uh, is the term. And so when you're thinking in, in those terms, you're thinking of something that is, it's not, very, it's not necessarily substantial in that you can actually pick it up and hold on to it, but it is still, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> it is still powerful and it's still strong. Jesus used the same term when he was talking to Nicodemus. Remember that encounter with, with uh, Nicodemus of the Pharisees in, in the Gospel of John? He's sitting down with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is bewildered about Jesus' comment about the presence of, of the Spirit. And he says, how can this be? And Jesus says, well, the wind blows, and the word that he uses there for wind is pneuma. Precisely the same word that at the end he says, so it is with the Spirit. And so there is this concept of breath and motion and living, a living nature of things. And so when Paul in verse 16 says, 17 rather, he says, uh, I pray that the Lord may give you a, the spirit of wisdom, uh, the breathing of wisdom. Wisdom now is a, is a term that really describes um, being able to make right use of that which you know. Uh, it's, it's certainly more complex than that. But the idea is you may know a lot of stuff, but you may not necessarily be wise. But if, if you do, if you use what you know uh, in a beneficial and, and uh, uh, practical way, uh, that we can call wisdom. And he says, I want you... I'm praying that from the Lord you will just receive the breathing of the right action of the Spirit. Um, and don't miss what this means. It means Paul is interceding for them. And that's the second, that's the second element that I notice in his prayer. He's now talking about intercession. First he gives thanks. Second thing he does is he intercedes on their behalf. He says, I'm praying that the Lord will give you the breathing of, of the right use of what you know. And then here's that word and again that, that we mentioned a little earlier that could also mean indeed. So let me read it that way. He says, we'll give you spiritual wisdom, indeed revelation in your growing knowledge of him. Now the word revelation there is the same word that we use for the for the last book in the Bible. And it has to do with the unfolding or the revealing, the making known of something that uh, is, hasn't been fully understood to this point. And so he's talking about praying for them that they would receive the spirit of, of uh, wisdom and revelation. And, and the implication in the book in, in Revelation is that it's growing, that it's constantly unfolding. And in this context, what Paul is talking about is you're a part of an unfolding of God's purposes and plans. You're part of that. And I've been praying that you understand the unfolding, the, the growing knowledge of the Lord. And as you're doing that, 
you are moving as a citizen of the kingdom, having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and have been walking with, with the Lord. He goes on and says, Since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He's talking, I'm going to go ahead and read 17 and 18 together so we get a better idea of the connection. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. Okay? It makes a little more sense when we connect them up together like that. He's saying the reason that he is able to pray that they would receive that breathing of wisdom and the unfolding of knowledge in him is because the eyes of their heart have been opened. How is that possible? You know, Jody does a, a just a delightful study about the lamp of the eye is the spirit. And what Paul's saying is here, here is you have been indwelt by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit now is the Lord in you. And because you have that indwelling presence, that the eyes of your heart have been opened. And you're able to see things that you would not have been able to see before. That's how he's able to pray the things that he's praying. He says, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, so that you can know what is the hope of his calling. Now, this word hope, I don't think is, uh, it, it surprises some of you that the word hope uh, in, our, in our language, when we use it, quite often we, it, there's a, a, a sort of uncertainty about it. That, uh, like when we say, I hope it doesn't snow. Well, if you look out the window, you've probably determined that there's a level of uncertainty in that statement. I hope it doesn't snow. That means it might, it might not. In this case, it did. But as Paul is using it here, he's not talking about we're hoping that we have a calling. He's talking about the certainty of it. He is talking about the, the confident expectation of, of something. And in this case, he's talking about the confident expectation of the unfolding of God's kingdom. And he's saying, I want you to know. And that's what he's praying for. Okay, back to prayer for just a minute. He's interceding. He's asking that God would benefit the people in Ephesus. That's that covenant love that we were talking about earlier. That we pray for, work for, encourage, hope for the, the uh, fullness of the Holy Spirit for them. And so he says, I want you to know what is the confident expectation of your calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe as displayed in the exercise of his immense strength? The power he exercised in Christ. We're at verse 20 now. The power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Where? 
in the heavenly places. Where he takes up, he is enthroned and able to rule a united kingdom over a united, unified creation and people. But now there's something very interesting, and we're, we're going to finish with this, because I want to take you back to that brief discussion I had with you about that word saints. Remember, I suggested to you that the word saints is far more than just a, a group of people who are called together and they believe in Jesus. No, the word saints really strongly implies that there is a group of people that have been redeemed and have been energized, enlivened to be the amphibians that C.S. Lewis talked about, who were not only spirit, but also embodied as well. But when Paul talks about saints, he's talking about people who are able to walk and live in both halves, both halves of God's creation, the infinite eternal and the time and spatial. And if you doubt that, all you need to do is go just one chapter further, just a few verses on, and you find something very interesting about you and me and the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. I'm going to start in verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him. Now strap yourself in for the last part. And seated us with him. Where? In the heavenly places. The heavenly realms in Christ. That's who the saints are. The saints aren't just people. They are redeemed people. The saints aren't just people that walk around on earth, but they are people who are destined, who have a destiny also in the heavenly places as God brings his kingdom together and his kingdom comes so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. And I need to finish here by just saying that one of the things that is going to be so important to us going forward is that we live into and step into the reality of who we are. Now that we've become Christians, we have to learn to walk as the Christians we've become. And this is why I've encouraged a number of people, and I'm encouraging you, to remember your place in God's plan. And that's why I encourage you, when you part company from one another, remind each other of your place and what you're about. Because what you live for and what you do is for the redeemed and for the king. So as I sign off for today, I'm going to ask you to remember the second half of my parting words. Whatever you do, it's for the redeemed. Now you can fill in the blank. Montebello Church Sermons.